Hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. My name is Doug Hooley, and I am thrilled that you're using your precious time to join me here. The topics we've been discussing are paradigm shifting, as you would expect from our current series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus, which is based on my latest book by the same title. I can hardly believe it, but this is already episode number 10 in the series. Last time, we left off with finishing up the book of Matthew and talking about the so-called Great Commission. If you missed that episode, I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to it. I did a lot of thinking this this week about what a rip-off it is for today's Great Commissioners <laughs> to continue to preach the traditional view of what that passage means. That view based on what I believe to be an intentional mistranslation of Scripture for the purpose of supporting the evangelical agenda, starting with modern English translations of the Bible in the 19th century. Of course, the traditional view is that the disciples of Jesus throughout all time, ever since he was here and walked the earth, have been commanded by him to spread the gospel throughout the entire earth, making disciples of everyone and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That essentially reduces this passage of Scripture to an authoritarian and oppressive list of commands for people to abide by or obey. So if you call yourself a Christian or a disciple of Christ, you're going to do these things that he commanded. In actuality, what took place at this so-called Great Commission is that Jesus did, in fact, commission his original disciples to be his only apostles who could speak on his behalf. Yes, he gave them the job of relaying everything that they had seen Jesus say and do as first-hand witnesses, a unique qualification. For us, not being the apostles, (laughs) this passage of scripture that most call the Great Commission is actually the story of where the Bible came from. The Bible is the result of the Great Commission. Of the, uh, it's the result of the apostles fulfilling their commission. It's the fulfillment of the Great Commission in written form. Jesus told his apostles to instruct others to hold on to and treasure all the things that he had said and done. Viewing this passage of Scripture in the proper light according to this more accurate translation and interpretation, it turns the so-called Great Commission from being a human-based goal to save the world into focusing on what Jesus has already accomplished to make salvation possible and how it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of saving, not people. But you know what? I would expect nothing less out of a human institution such as the church to make humans responsible for salvation, rather than leaving that responsibility with the only one that is able to actually accomplish it. Anyway, let's move on into the other Gospels found in the New Testament. Since we've already addressed much of what the other Gospels are going to say as we went through the book of Matthew, I don't think this is going to take long. Well, Mark is one of the three synoptic 
Gospels beside the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. That means that although there are some differences in the accounting of events and the author styles found in these three Gospels, Mark does take a common view of the Gospel along with Matthew and Luke. So being that Mark is a synoptic Gospel, Matthew has already covered many of the topics regarding the gathering of the Ecclesia um, that Mark will cover. So I'm not going to repeat those. But to quickly list some of those topics we've already covered, they include baptism, the Sabbath, the family of Jesus, you know, who makes that up, Jesus attending the synagogue on the Sabbath, the foundation of the Ecclesia, which is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, money, making show of religion, and the Great Commission, which we just spoke about. One notable thing in the book of Mark is, unlike Matthew, who used the word ecclesia three times in his gospel, Mark's gospel never even uses the word once. You will not find the word church anywhere in Mark's gospel. So anyway, let's get started. One thing that stands out in the gospel of Mark and Luke that Jesus said to his disciples serves as a great caution to us as we may rush to judge others who say they are followers of Jesus, who we may not initially recognize as such. We can read about what might be called allies in Mark 9.40 and Luke 9.49-50. The disciples had witnessed others who were not among the twelve disciples closest to Jesus casting out demons and they were doing so by invoking the name of Jesus. Thinking these strangers had no right to do so, to use the name of Jesus, the inner circle of disciples tried to stop these apparent outsiders. When they told Jesus about what had happened, he responded by telling them, don't try and stop them, because, quote, the one who is not against us is for us, unquote. The demon-casting users of Jesus' name, who were unknown to Jesus' closest disciples, were apparently elected by God to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of the living God, thereby qualifying them to use His name to do His work. Although not known by the closest to Jesus, they were still a part of Jesus' ecclesia. The evidence of their belief in, the, in Jesus in this case, was the mighty work that they did in his name. Jesus was careful to point out that such evidence does not need to be a mighty work, but it may be as simple as giving someone a cup of water to drink because they belong to Jesus. Well, (laughs) you may have noted by now that I am highly critical of the institution that claims to represent Jesus. How can I reconcile that with what we just, what I just spoke about? How is it possible that it can be okay to be critical of such an institution that's accomplished so much good in the name of Jesus? Well, the short answer is, well, first let me qualify that. Many institutions that don't claim to belong to Jesus also do good. Doing good, or those that put a cross on their door and claim to belong to Jesus, do not corner the market in doing good. Well, so anyway, I would say the short answer is, but now I've made it longer. But I don't believe 
all of those institutions that represent themselves to be of Jesus, that they actually are for or are in favor of or in line with the real Jesus. Many are serving a false Jesus. Yes, they are using Jesus' name, but just like there are many Bobs in this world, there are many Jesuses. Using the Great Commission that I just talked about as an example, do you really think there are many in the evangelical church who are for such an interpretation that I gave? No, (laughs) there are not. In fact, I know many Christians who would likely be lost without having the Great Commission to cling to. They are not for the idea that the work of salvation entirely rests in God's hands. They are against that idea. They are not for what I was saying. They are against it. They would be highly critical of me suggesting such a thing, and many would likely condemn me to the fires of hell for suggesting it. So, there we are, both claiming that we belong to Jesus, yet not being for what the other says is the truth about him. Very likely, we are talking about different Jesuses. The one Jesus, depending on me to save the world, and the other Jesus, having already done so. Anyway, let's move on. That is all I have to say (laughs) about the Gospel of Mark, believe it or not. It's been covered in the book of Matthew. So moving on to the Gospel of Luke. This may be of some surprise to some of you, but there is nothing left to talk about in the Gospel of Luke that hasn't already been addressed in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark regarding the gathering together of the ecclesia. Uh, We should expect that could be the case since they are just overlapping one another, but they are from different perspectives. I have already talked about what Luke had to say about that when I was going through Matthew. So, boom, there we are. We're done with the synoptic gospels of the New Testament in what in regard to what they say about the gathering together of the ecclesia. Well, what can we take from the synoptic gospels to begin to piece together our biblical model of the ecclesia? First, Jesus tells us that the rock or foundation the ecclesia is built on is the belief or faith, or trust, that He is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Without that faith or belief, there is no ecclesia. Faith in Jesus and hope in what He said the future holds for the called out ones are the foundational principles of the ecclesia. The precepts of faith and hope are echoed many times throughout the entire New Testament as you will see. Called out from among the rest, the ecclesia is made up of a family of bond-servant priests. Those making up the ecclesia have been elected by God and called by the Holy Spirit to salvation. Besides being made up of priests, the ecclesia is a family. Yet, it's a family or household who are also compared to bond-servants voluntary slaves who belong to their master, Jesus. It's he 
who makes salvation possible by purchasing the called out with his own blood. There is no rank or status among the ecclesia. All make up a body of which Jesus alone is the head. Jesus demonstrated that wherever he sat down to teach was an appropriate place for his followers to assemble. He is the basis for the assembly. He is the light of the world which cannot be hidden. The good work that can be accomplished which brings glory to him is our belief in him. Man, I hope you're getting all this stuff. These are all the things just concise, boom, (laughs) boiled down that the three synoptic gospels have had to say about the organization of the ecclesia. Here's another. Showy acts of religiosity, including good works, designed to bring attention to an individual or publicity to an institution, public prayers, and openly giving money are among activities that are the antithesis of what Jesus said his followers should be doing on his behalf. The opposite of what we should be doing. Next, false teaching within the ecclesia has been a problem since the beginning, and being on guard for it is the subject of many passages of Scripture. Having knowledge and understanding of Scripture is the first defense against being deceived. The command to be watchful is perhaps stressed more than any other. Rooting out false teaching and having no part of it is the biblical antidote for it. Identifying false teachers so others don't fall into their deception also plays a big part. Then, wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, he reminds us that he is there also. Yet, while gathered in his name, Jesus tells us that those who honor traditions are only superficially honoring God. Their worship is in vain. The ecclesia, as Jesus describes it in the Gospels, does not take on the form of a religion. It is not Judaism 2.0. It's no mystery why Jesus had little use or respect for religious leaders. The ecclesia is not a building or a service. It should not be compared to the Jewish temple or synagogue. Money plays a central part in most church services today. However, so long as God was the number one priority in the life of those Jesus interacted with, he was disinterested in the topic of money. He did, however, think it appropriate to provide for the basic needs of traveling evangelists while they were on the road on his behalf. Although the Jews were commanded to keep the Sabbath, there is no such holy day set apart for those Gentiles who follow Jesus. For the chosen priests of God, which every member of the ecclesia is, every day is considered set apart or holy or sanctified for Jesus. There is no specific time and no day of the week associated with or preferred in the Bible with being a part of the ecclesia. Baptism. Baptism originated as a public initiation rite that symbolically proclaimed, through the action of cleansing oneself in the water, 
that one has left their old life behind and has come to belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus means knowing and trusting Jesus and putting that knowledge and trust into action by following Him. Although baptism started out as a cultural action, it has remained a cultural action that is still well known across the world. It sends the same message today when it's participated in by someone mature enough to know the meaning of their actions. There is no indication in Scripture that baptism was performed as a part of any special service in the early ecclesia or that it was necessary to take a class before being baptized. Once someone decided to follow Jesus, they were baptized as soon as possible. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about those things. I am not trying to dictate a new form of Christianity. I'm just trying to present you with some information here. That's what happened. What about communion or the Lord's Supper? If there was ever anything worth celebrating and remembering... It's what the Lord Jesus did for us through His death and resurrection. However, what we consider today as the Lord's Supper originated as two components of a ceremonial meal, which Jesus changed the meaning of. These two components were lifted out of the greater context of a multi-part Jewish Passover Seder. As those two components were focused on and misused By the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul responded by providing some corrective instruction. It's that correction of the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the Last Supper that the church's tradition of communion is based on. Although communion is in the category of being a biblical practice by virtue of the ecclesia in Corinth participating in some form of it, and Paul didn't forbid them from doing so, Communion finds itself in the same category of any other religious practice, which is based on a significant historical event in the Bible, which was not mandated to be celebrated into the future or recorded in the Bible as being widely practiced. There's just no recording in the Bible that it was widely practiced. There's nothing in Scripture indicating that taking of the elements of communion was ever anything more than a memorial celebration of the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, like I say, you're not going to read about it anywhere else, other than in Corinthians and when it originally occurred in the Gospels. What else did we learn in the Synoptic Gospels? The ecclesia is holy. Those who are called out are set apart for God. Becoming a part of the ecclesia is an important topic. Some are called by the Holy Spirit to be evangelists. Some are not. Many are called to eternal life, but few will find it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that will lead anyone to find it. While he may use the called out to assist in this effort, we are to be careful and wise with dispensing the precious truths of the gospel. So far, what will be surprising to many Our survey of the New Testament has revealed the only function (laughs) directly mentioned that's to take place when the ecclesia assembles is that of deciding on disciplinary matters and holding its members accountable. Beyond this, 
it can be inferred that the main purpose of the ecclesia assembling is to support the reason it exists in the first place, belief in Jesus. Secondly, the ecclesia may need to assemble from time to time to fulfill the obligation of loving other members of the ecclesia as family. That being said, there's yet to be any direct information on what form that should take. And that's what I put together that we have so far learned from the Synoptic Gospels that it has to directly say about the gathering, the corporate functioning of the called out of Jesus, the ecclesia. So, why not let's move on to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. Well, no one gets to the core of what the ecclesia is about like the Apostle John. The very basis of why the ecclesia exists and what it's supposed to be accomplishing is all contained within John's gospel. The Apostle John and Jesus had both a special brotherly and master-servant relationship. John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He's the only apostle to live a long, full life probably into his 90s. Besides receiving the revelation from Jesus in his old age, John had a lot of time to reflect on what he had learned from Jesus since the time they traveled and lived together for over three years. He'd been able to witness the ecclesia as it developed, and he was aware of the problems that had arisen, such as the many false teachings. He knew the questions that needed to be addressed the most, and it's from that perspective that John eventually wrote his unique gospel. Of course, the Apostle John covers many of the same topics as the other gospels regarding how the ecclesia should interact, but he does so in a different way. But I've already incorporated what John had to write about such things in preceding episodes, so we're not going to do it again. For the most part, there are some things that we will more thoroughly cover uh, in this episode. First, in John chapter 6, verse 28, John talks about the work of God. I refer to this passage like all the time. It's in the Gospel of John that Jesus clearly articulates the one and only work that one can do which leads to salvation. Jesus called the one thing the work of God. It's no coincidence that it's the same work that is, the rock which his ecclesia is built upon. When Jesus was asked, what is it we should be doing to do the work of God? His answer was not, go into all the world and spread the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. The answer was also not, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, and heal the sick. No. Jesus simply replied, quote, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Unquote. The one God had sent, of course, was Jesus. That, in all its simplicity, is the gospel message. That is the work that the ecclesia is built upon. That is the primary mission of the ecclesia and the commission, which is far greater than any other. The work of belief requires knowing Jesus, 
Knowing him requires seeking him and his kingdom first and always every day, not just until you first find him, not just until you get saved. Seeking him, to know him, is a lifelong quest. How many lifetimes would it take to really get to know the Messiah and the Son of God through whom all things exist and have their being? All of him, not just a part of him. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Getting to know Jesus is one thing that will keep us occupied throughout eternity. Belief in Jesus, all of Jesus, not just a part of him, and the hope in what he said is the reason the ecclesia exists. Carrying out belief in Jesus is the primary work the ecclesia is to accomplish, whether individually or when we're assembled. How does that work play out when the ecclesia is gathered? It's through learning about Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he meant by what he said, what he accomplished in both the physical and the unseen realms, and what it is he said that he is yet to do. This constitutes our hope. Those are good places to start as far as accomplishing the work of God, which is to believe in the one whom God sent, Jesus. Next, John chapter 10. It's going to tell us that Jesus is the only good shepherd. John focused on a couple stories where Jesus used analogies comparing himself to a shepherd, while the called out play the part of the sheep. In the beginning of John chapter 10, Jesus relays a bizarre situation in which someone's climbing over the wall of a sheep pen to steal the sheep inside. The thief, who's also referred to as later as the wolf, comes to kill and destroy. The wolf is obviously the enemy of the sheep and of the shepherd. It's Satan and those that do Satan's bidding. In this scenario, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. The sheep know his voice and follow him. The sheep symbolize the called out who follow Jesus. This is a rich passage in which there are several important points made. But among them, Jesus says that as the good shepherd, it's only he that will lay down his life for the called out ones. He then says something significant as far as the functioning of the ecclesia is concerned. Here's what it is. This is John chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. The hired hand who is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing about the sheep. We know the sheep represent the ecclesia. The good shepherd is Jesus, and the wolf is Satan. But who are the hired hands? I'm suggesting that both in Jesus' day and today, that they are the religious professionals who are compensated to watch over the ecclesia, actually the church. They're paid shepherds, literally hired hands. Now, 
before every pastor, which, by the way, literally means shepherd, declares that I (laughs) am the wolf in this scenario, I don't believe that every paid pastor should be equated with the hired hands Jesus is talking about in this passage. Surely, if a pastor is primarily doing their job for a paycheck, I believe this passage absolutely applies to them. But that's far from the case with all pastors. Pastors who are called to be pastors, who have the heart of a pastor, are a treasure. I have known and currently know such called out ones who serve as pastors. But here's a question that has to be answered in this regard. If you are a pastor, would you be doing the same thing today whether you're being paid to do so or not? Of course, you might have to cut back on full-time pastoring so you could earn a living, but if your answer is no, that you would not continue as a pastor because you were not compensated for it, then you are probably a hired hand. If money or some other form of compensation like prestige or influence or authority is what you signed on for, then every payday, quote, surely you have received your reward, unquote. For those of you who can honestly answer yes, that you could not help but continue in your role as a pastor, well, may God bless you in your work. You may ask, How could the church ever survive without full-time paid clergy? Of course, not that we're in danger of that anytime soon. But let me answer that for you. I don't think the church could survive. Remember, of course, what the church is. The church depends on man's efforts. However, under Jesus' leadership, the Good Shepherd, a local biblically-based, right-sized community of ecclesia, where everyone was fulfilling their God-given roles, would thrive without a full-time pastor. Moving on. John chapter 12, verses 25 to 26. Jesus summed up the connection between some of the greatest false teachings in the church when he said this. This is from John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whether it's the rapture of the church before the Great Tribulation, or the supersessionist teaching that the church has replaced Israel, or the name-it-and-claim-it health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine, or allowing science and reason to replace trust in the scriptures, or defending our American way of life as though God drafted the Constitution— It's our love of our lives and this world that's behind all these popular teachings. Serving Jesus means giving up the love of our life and this world to the point where it doesn't interfere with following Him and believing whatever He said and understanding it in a way that He meant it, not in a way that's convenient for us. John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me... Let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. 
authentic believers in Jesus who are called to salvation do not sign on with temporal compensation in mind, be it money or housing, reputation, authority, title, admiration, prestige, comfort, or convenience. The called out follow Jesus because His way is the way of truth. He is the only authentic show in town. For the called out, knowing that Jesus is your master and that He thinks of you as His servant is its own out-of-this-world reward. It's a gift that brings tears to my eyes and makes me giddy at the same time. And if that weren't enough, Jesus says that his Father, I get this, the Creator of the universe, will honor those who serve him. That is far beyond any compensation I could ever dream of being worthy to receive. It's the love of this world and life that causes us to cling sentimentally to non-biblically-based practices and teachings in the church. Later, in John chapter 12, verses 20, let's see, 42 to 43, John writes of rulers that believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Jesus, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The reason, according to John, is that Quote, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God, unquote. The praise, recognition, prestige, or esteem that comes from men is a different kind of compensation. But compensation it is. Purposefully seeking such compensation is to love this life and the temporary things of this world that it has to offer. James is quite blunt in his assessment of the ecclesia's relationship with the world. This is what he says in James chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The love of this world and ourselves, what people think of us, is one of the things that keeps many pastors from questioning long-held doctrines that don't line up with Scripture. Love of our lives and this world is what keeps them, pastors, from acting in true brotherly love towards others by speaking the truth, over speaking what people want to hear, or their denominational hierarchy and tradition dictates that they preach. The love of this world and our lives can significantly contribute to a bad set of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the principles that we interpret Scripture by. Beware of teaching in the church, which feeds the love of this world and our carnal, temporal lives. Now, here's something a little different. During the very same evening that the Last Supper took place, Jesus poured water into a basin and he washed the feet of his disciples. Afterwards, he asked them if they realized what he had done in washing their feet. Then he said this. This is from John chapter 13, verses 13 to 17. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The instructions seem clear enough. After providing a personal demonstration of humility for each of them, Jesus reminded them that he is their teacher, and they should do what he just did as an example to each of them, to each other. He said they'll be blessed if they do so. Now, very few churches participate in this foot-washing ritual that Jesus purposefully demonstrated as an example of what he told his disciples that he wanted them to do for each other. I do remember seeing it done at least once when I was a kid in the Mennonite church that I grew up attending. But why is something that is so explicit in Scripture so rare to find in a church service? I've included this not to make a case that when the ecclesia meets, the members should wash one another's feet. Rather, I do so to point out the hypocrisy of religious leaders who try and make a case for one religious practice as being biblical, which is not explicit in Scripture, while they ignore something like foot washing, which, by all appearances, could be considered a straightforward biblical religious sacrament, a ritual initiated by Jesus himself, which demonstrates love and humility. So much of what Jesus did and said was to make a point. It was not to start a new religion or institute a new religious practice. The point here, with his foot washing, was that of showing love and being humble within the body of Christ. What he demonstrated echoed his teaching that the last will be made first, and the greatest in the kingdom of God will be the servant of all. We make a mistake when we mindlessly try to emulate actions we read of in the Bible while we miss the point about what those actions meant in the context in which they occurred. We miss a major point that Jesus was trying to get across that God does not desire our religious actions. He desires our entire hearts. While I'm sure that he appreciates clean feet as much as anyone... (laughs) The point is that Jesus wants his followers to always put others in the family of God ahead of themselves. Another example of religious hypocrisy involves that of the holy kiss. (laughs) The holy kiss was another widespread practice of the primal ecclesia, known throughout all the regions the ecclesia were found in. The holy kiss could easily be said to be a biblical practice, but it's mostly ignored today. I mean, almost entirely ignored today. On several occasions, it could even be said that the Apostle Paul commanded the members of the ecclesia to greet one another with a holy kiss. Yet, where is the holy kiss today in all those churches that say they strictly follow the Bible and strive to do things the way the early Christians did? It seems in this case, most churches have decided to go with what the spirit of the Holy Kiss was about, showing close family love to one another, rather than making a religious practice out of it. Modern church leaders dismiss practices such as foot washing and holy kisses as ancient cultural traditions. 
but they do so while clinging to other ancient traditions. Hypocrisy is picking and choosing that which we are comfortable with and supports our personal beliefs while saying our only priority is being biblical. Moving on. Jesus and the apostles made clear that love is non-negotiable for the ecclesia. Jesus was speaking to those closest to him, his disciples, when he said, quote, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Unquote. If the ecclesia is putting their belief in Jesus into action, they will love one another as Jesus loves his called out. The act of loving one another within the ecclesia is second only in predominance in the New Testament scriptures to the act of believing in Jesus and maintaining hope in what he said. These are the primary functions of the ecclesia until the return of Jesus and beyond. If we were to throw out all cultural traditions that have compiled for the last 2,000 years in the name of the church and kept only that which is biblical regarding the assembling of the ecclesia, we'll find what remains all supports or facilitates faith in Jesus, hope in what he said about the future, and love for one another in the ecclesia. Abiding in these three things, faith, hope, and love, is at the core of what the called out ones get out of bed each day to do. It's the essence of of seeking first the kingdom of God. Well, Doug, what are we supposed to do if we're not fulfilling the Great Commission? What we're supposed to do is strengthen our faith in Jesus, maintain our hope in what he said about the future, and love one another in the ecclesia. That is what we should do. Okay, well, there are several places in the Gospels where Jesus warns those who follow him that they will be hated by the world. And the reason for that hate is because Jesus has chosen his followers to come out from or no longer be a part of the world. John 15, 19 says this, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The non-elect, the uncalled out, or what the scripture calls the world, hates those who have been called out of it by Jesus. I won't go so far as to say that according to this scripture, the measure of success of the ecclesia is how much they are hated by the world. But I will say that the measure of success is not how much they are loved by it. The same goes for individual called-out ones. A called-out one should not be surprised to find themselves incompatible with the assemblies of man, churches, which hold the traditionals and the doctrines of men. Jesus warned his disciples of this also. He said this, in John 16, verses 2 to 3. They will put you out of the synagogues, the assemblies. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers good service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. 
All right. So whoever kills you will think that they're offering a service to God? Someone thinks they're serving God in a way that leads them to believe murder is a righteous act. That is a deceived but devoted and sincere person. That should challenge and scare the holy water out of all of us who believe we're seriously devoting to serving God. Such persecution, unfortunately, did not end during the era of the apostles. Many sincere and zealous Christians killed many other sincere and zealous Christians through most of the history of the church. You think it's different today? Maybe you don't see the amount of murder. There's a whole lot of not getting along going on out there. All the while, there are so many churches that strive to be popular in their local communities mostly in order, you know, good intentions, so that we can draw people in, so that we can present the gospel to them. That is not (laughs) a biblical formula. They're going to, if you are following Jesus, if you are of Jesus, you will be hated by the world, despite your best efforts. Again, moving on. In John chapter 15, Jesus spoke to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit after he would no longer be among them and what that meant. Because of what we see occurring in the book of Acts and in the letters of the apostles, we know that much of what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit applied not only to the disciples who were with him on the earth, but to his disciples of all times. What we know for sure is that the Holy Spirit has a large role in the lives of the individual called out, as well as a role with the corporate cells of ecclesias, the local communities of ecclesia. For example, John records that Jesus tells us that it is the Holy Spirit who, quote, convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, unquote. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin, not the ecclesias. An individual Christian's efforts to try and convict the world or an individual of sin, one sin at a time, is an anti-biblical principle. That's the Holy Spirit's job. In the United States, we're all blessed with being able to participate in our political process, but outside of the laws which God has ordained that man has placed on the books, Imposing the moral code of God on unbelievers who are not a part of the ecclesia is something best and biblically left to the Holy Spirit and not social media. Well, next, I spent most of my career in the criminal justice profession working in the corrections system. When you work in a jail, few days pass when you don't hear the words, Hey, do your own time. That's the same as saying, mind your own business. It has nothing to do with you. Well, being one who searches hearts and minds, Jesus is the one who knows us inside and out. He knows our capabilities, resources, inadequacies, strengths, and weaknesses. He knows our past, and he knows our future. Based on all that information that he has and we don't have about each other, he's tailored his plan for each of us. That plan is between him and those who belong to him. 
It's through the Holy Spirit that he intrinsically motivates the spirits of the called out to accomplish his will. It's only to Jesus that we are ultimately individually responsible and accountable. As we read in John chapter 21, after Jesus had been resurrected, he had a conversation with Peter in which he informed him that one day, when he was old, he would be crucified. In response, Peter pointed out John and asked Jesus, well, what about him? Peter was inquiring as to John's future. Jesus responded, if it's my will that he remains until I come back, what's that to you? You follow me. It's always tempting in a family to be all up in each other's business, even when there is no real need to be. As we love and support one another within the ecclesia, it's always good to remember that one way we can do so is to just do our own time and follow Jesus. Okay, So that's it for the book of John, what he has to say about the ecclesia and the gathering together of the called out. So let me make a summary here of what John had to say about all of that. It's John who boils down for us the one work that leads to salvation. That's belief or faith or trust in Jesus. Belief in Jesus is also the foundational principle by which the ecclesia exists. That's the work and it's the basis it exists. Jesus referred to himself as the one and only good shepherd who is qualified to lead his ecclesia. It's he who laid his life down for it. Those paid professionals who pretend to watch over the church are referred to by Jesus as hirelings. Then John emphasized the commandment that Jesus gave to those who make up his ecclesia. It's to love one another. Loving one another is one of the three fundamental functions of the ecclesia besides belief in Jesus and maintaining hope in what he said. Next, popularity in a city or town may be a measure of success for a church, but it is no measure of success for the called out. Jesus said his followers can expect to be hated by the world because he was hated. Then, the Holy Spirit has many roles within the ecclesia. But his work does not stop there. It's he who is responsible for convicting the world of their sin. Jesus promised that when he went to be with his Father in heaven, that he will send the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what happened. Okay, so the chief principles found in all four Gospels regarding the foundation, purpose, and function of the Ecclesia can be summed up in the following six points. If you don't hear it here, its enduring need in the ecclesia is in question. Here we go. Number one, authentic belief or faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God is the foundation and the work of the ecclesia. Number two, hope in what Jesus says will happen in the future. Number three, Loving one another within the ecclesia is non-negotiable. The fourth principle is that Jesus is the only shepherd of the ecclesia. Number five, the Holy Spirit has many important roles in the ecclesia, including convicting the world of sin and revealing the truth of who Jesus is. 
And number six, maintaining the integrity of the ecclesia through holding others accountable within the ecclesia and guarding against deception is a critical work of the ecclesia that's mentioned in scripture more than anything else. Well, there is far more information in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament than what only pertains directly to the purpose and function of the ecclesia. But these six principles really sum it up as far as what the purpose and the function of the ecclesia when they get together is. That's a really important thing to get. What we're going to see in the rest of the New Testament regarding the ecclesia is the historical accounting of how these six principles regarding the ecclesia played out in various localities. Some local ecclesias seem to do better than others. The letters of Paul to the ecclesias, where he's addressing how they should operate, you can think of them this way. They're largely responses to them getting off track. But we're going to repeatedly continue to see these six principles come up. It's in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that these principles are beautifully reflected in what I call the prime directive of the ecclesia. Well, that's going to do it for this time on the Called Out Cafe. We covered a lot of ground, and I hope you've been blessed by it. Next time, we'll start into the book of Acts. Until then, may God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 